questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. There are powers on Earth too hidden to be seen and conspiracies too vast to comprehend. For years, the world has seen facts distorted, reality manipulated, and the truth concealed. Tonight, we uncover the real meanings behind ancient aliens and their symbolism. Aliens, angels, the jinn, Elohim, seraphim, cherubim, or interdimensional entities. Are they the same? They have one thing in common. They have full mastery of time and space and are not confined to our three-dimensional reality. They reside between worlds, in pockets known as quantum states. They can coexist between physical and spiritual planes. We'll look into the ancient extraterrestrial phenomenon, the symbolism, and particularly the comparison with flying saucers. We'll look at the controversial possibility that the aliens are not passive observers, but instead have infiltrated human life and are an intrinsic part of the fiber of society. They coexist and live among us as a parallel society. The implications regarding alien intrusion is a staggering argument. For the most part, it's hardly entertained within modern ufology. What is scaphology, angelic sailors, and the ophanim? You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, Divinia water, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Today's special guest is symbologist, comparative linguist, and author, Pierre Sabak. Pierre is an expert on ancient symbolism and etymology, and is widely recognized as a leading academic in the field of religion, mythology, mysticism, and the esoteric. An academic, Pierre Sabak is the author of The Murder of Reality, Hidden Symbolism of the Dragon, and Holographic Culture, which will be the focus of tonight's interview. He is currently writing The Invisible Kingdom and The Angelic Invasion. To learn more, visit his website, PierreSabakBooks.com, which is also linked at ours, and also Pierre Sabak on YouTube. Pierre joins us directly from the UK, which is very late. Hello, Pierre, and welcome to Veritas. Hi there. It's it's brilliant to be on your um, channel, so thank you very much for inviting me. Um, yeah, um, I, I guess we should start right at the beginning, which is scaphology, which is the study of angelic boats and, and vessels. And I think that this might actually surprise your viewers, um, but within the angelological tradition, the angelological traditions are equated with these angelic ships and these angelic vessels. And this is really the remit of scaphology. Scaphology is the study of these boats um, within the religious and uh, mythological tradition. And so scaphology is coming from the Greek etymology of scaph, which is a boat from scapto to dig out. So the conceptualization of these angelic boats or vessels are as these hollow boats or these hollow containers. And certainly within the Judaic and the Mediterranean traditions, the two primary ways of um, describing these boats, and we'll get into this in a little bit more detail later on, is either as a spinning wheel or as a spinning shield. And, and the shield itself is equated with the symbology of the boat, whereas the wheel is equated with the chariot. So the angel and the boat are, are really synonyms. And, and this is important to understand because it's really at the basis of the angelological tradition. 
And this is really, if you like, a classical discourse which has been edited or redacted. And so when we look at the word classical, when we're referring to classical mythology, what we're actually referring to is classis, which is a naval fleet. Okay, so the etymology of classical is coming from classis, which is a naval fit fleet. And the um, label naval fleet is really relating to the angel this is the angelic tradition which is otherwise known as the naval tradition and um, and and so the angel themselves they are depicted as these angelic sailors and so when we go into the etymology of an angel i mean traditionally the greek word angel angelos which is a messenger but when we take this back into the ancient arabic uh, we see that laaka um, which is to um to give a message where the original root of angel originates from. But the word angel is polymorphic. And again, this is very important when we go into symbolism. And I'm going to try and keep this very, um, shall we say, simplistic for your audience, because sometimes sometimes my audience says that, um, that I tend to go into too much detail. And so I'll, I'll try and keep this um, simple. So therefore, we have what is known within symbology as polymorphic symbolism. Uh, this is a word with multiple meanings, and we find this also with the word angel. So for example, Malak an angel is polymorphic of Malak a sailor. And so the angels within the ancient Semitic are viewed as angelic sailors. But as I said before, the classical tradition, classis the naval fleet, which appertains to the angelic tradition, is classified. And this is where we um, get our classifications within military um, secrecy. Um, this classified tradition is related to classis, which is a naval fleet, which goes back to the traditions of the angelic sailor. Now, what's very significant is that when we actually delve even further, and particularly when you go into the biblical studies and when you are looking, for example, within the Old Testament and the Torah, um, you have the representation of God as the Lord of the host. And I think that this is really important to emphasize to your viewers that the Lord of the host is really depicted as a Lord of a naval retinue. Okay, so he's a Lord of sailors. And as I said before, these sailors are identified with angelic carriers, which are equated with wheels, which in the Aramaic is the opening wheels, or they're equated with flying shields. But I really want to um, delve into the etymologies of the Lord of the host. So just to repeat, so that the um, viewers are not lost, Malak and Angel is polymorphic of Malacca sailor. Okay, so the angels themselves are viewed as sailors. And I think it's very interesting that when you go into the rabbinical traditions, uh, the rabbis, they themselves equate the word angel from the root amar, which is um, to, to command, um, to speak or to command, amar. Um, now, again, this is a type of encryption because amar is equated to amar, uh, amara, which is, a naval fleet again so the angels themselves are equated with this uh, naval fleet which is identified with a boat or a ship and is equated with Yahweh Sabaoth the Lord of the host so I really want to try and frame this argument for the audience so that the audience are very clear who and what the Lord of the host is now the Latin word host uh, refers to an invading army and again you find this within the Septuagint for example within the Greek translation of the Old Testament in which um, host is rendered as stratos, which is an army. Uh, the word stratos informs the English words institu institution, status, statute, as in the law. And as we shall shortly find out, um, I'll explain to you how the um, uh, maritime law is actually equated to this classified tradition or this classical or naval tradition, which is identified with the angelic sailor. So I want to now try and frame the argument in terms of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the host. Um, the etymology of Sabaoth, um, meaning host, um, Saba is an army, um, but the word can also have a connotation of a naval host, as in Sevet, which is a crew, 
um, um, of a vessel. And again, it's related to Teva, the modern Hebrew word for an ark, which is used in the Bible to denote both Noah's ark or also the receptacle which carried Moses, the wicker basket which carried Moses. Again, the basket is um, a cytological symbol or it's a symbol of a vessel which is used to denote a boat. And, and it works in a very similar way in the English language. When we say the word vessel, it's polymorphic. It can mean a container or it can also mean a boat. And this is also the same within the Greek and within the Semitic. They use the vessel as a symbology of a boat. So, um, and again, we're seeing that there's a relationship between Saboath, Sabar and Army, Seveta crew, Teva and Ark, and again, we're seeing that there's a relationship between Sabah and Army and Sefer, which is a viper. Now, this is very important because the Lord of the host, in particular, or more specifically, he's identified um, as the Lord of the seraphic host. Now, what do we mean by the seraphic host? And I think that this is really important to elaborate to the viewers. And this is certainly hidden behind the occult tradition, um, because within the occult tradition, you have two representations of the angels. So, for example, you have um, a proto-human angels who are the cherubim. And then you have the seraphic host or the seraphic angels, which are these non-human angels, which in today's parlance would be identified with an alien. And so and, and both of these um, angelic entities um, are, um, are partitioned within the occult tradition. So when you look at the priesthood, the priesthood itself is split between these partitions, between occult knowledge appertaining to um, the seraphic host, which are these non-human angels. In today's parlance, this would be an alien. And then we've got these proto-human angels, um, again, which are identified with boats. And I think that that's probably a good place for me to elaborate this connection with um, boats and angels so that we can be very, very clear about what we're talking about. But before we do that, and I don't, I don't really wish to confuse your viewers, because when I start talking about angelic sailors, I tend to find that the viewers, they, they tend to um, get a little bit confused by what I actually mean by an angelic sailor. So I think I need to clear this up straight away. The angelic sailor is an alien in today's parlance. The, the um, symbology is equated with what we would identify with an alien. And again, the ancient arcane traditions, they come through into the modern traditions of ufology, into science fiction. So they are this hidden or classified tradition which inform um, modern science fiction. Before you, before so you continue, for, Pierre, I don't mean to interrupt you, but uh, sure. I, I want to ask a few questions to dissect a little yes, bit please. more of the eschatology, the, the meaning of the words. I'm very curious sure. just to set a foundation. First of all, that this new book is called the Holographic Culture. Why that title? Also, what mm -hmm. made you dissect all these words and connect dots? Because I'm listening to Maritime Law. And this is something sure. I really want to dissect with you, because as okay. you know, this is the the law of, and I hate to say it, but this is the law of the land at these days, maritime law. What made it so prevalent? See, all these questions are popping up, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but please give Not us those foundations first. Okay, um, what would you like to deal with first of all? The holographic, the holographic culture. Okay, Why holographic the culture. Um, right. When I started looking into the um, angels, I quickly began to realize that the way in which they were represented within the biblical, the Quranic and the apocryphal traditions were they were basically represented as a paradoxical race. And by this, I mean that they were both res uh, represented as physical beings. And so they could be described as an LK, which is the Aramaic word for a high creature or a living God. Again, uh, the terminology is polymorphic. Or they could also be described as the Ruach Elohim, which are the high spirits. Now, the Ruach Elohim, the high spirits, when we break this down, are pretty much equivalent to the jinn, because the word jinn in the Aramaic means a spirit. And so um, the Elohim are described as the jinn. They are interchangeable and again the old etymology for jinn is related to jen which is a serpent or a worm and this actually gives us a clue because as i said earlier 
The Lord of the hosts, the bow of hosts, is related to Saba army and Sephef a serpent. And so the Lord of the host is related to the Lord of the seraphim. The seraphim and the jinn are identified with Sirius. And again, this goes back into astrotheology. And again, you need to go back into the ancient Arabic. And again, this goes back into the angelological tradition. Um, so going back to the terminology of a holographic culture, a holographic culture, they've deconstructed the mechanics of waveform reality. And by this, I mean that they can... Um, come in and out of our, our temporal reality. Now, our reality is composed of what Pythagoras described as musical notes. These different notes equate to different dimensions, and they have um, found the means of um, dissecting these different dimensions and therefore um, being able to penetrate or in interpenetrate these multiple dimensions. So um, they are, if you like, masters of holographic reality. Uh, now, I believe um, that they are a technological species and that they have deconstructed this scientifically. Um, the evidence for this is found within the apocryphal literature, which describes that they have um, deconstructed knowledge. This is why they can live so long, um, because they are masters over physical matter. And this is equated certainly in the traditions with the um, Greek traditions of the Demiurge. In the Greek traditions, the Demiurge, Demiurgos, is a public craftsman. The public craftsman created humanity. Now, the public craftsman in today's language is a genetic engineer, and the genetic engineer is equated with the planting of life on the earth, which in the Greek traditions is known as panspermia, um, but in the Quranic traditions is referred to as the second creation. And this is important because within the second creation, um, Allah doesn't create man, rather he recreates man from this proto-seed, and this is then planted, which is the Adamic man. So, um, so yes, a holographic culture um, are masters of waveform, and, and this is something which we need to be mindful of. And this is what is causing a lot of, shall we say, schisms or problems within ufology, um, because certainly from, let's say, the nine, late 1970s onwards, uh, the fashion has been that the um, ufological tradition is equated with a control structure, which is much more, shall we say, energetic and which is um, a construct rather than necessarily something which is physical. And so if you like, there is this, um, I call it the alien dialectic, this dialectic or argument between are the entities physical beings with nuts and bolts um, craft or are we dealing here with this control structure which could be spiritual or this um, some kind of energetic force now when you begin to look into this closely and you look certainly within the apocrypha traditions the apocrypha traditions say that they are both spiritual and physical in the same way humanity is both physical and spiritual but what separates the elohim the high ones um, from humanity is that they have deconstructed the waveform. Now, this is not beyond humanity's capabilities. We are on the verge of deconstructing the waveform ourselves. So we are just, if you like, at this precipice of um, being able to um, deconstruct the waveform. We already have the language for the waveform. And again, this idea was going back into um, platonic um metaphor and neoplatonic um, philosophy so within uh, neoplatonic philosophy for, for example the implicated order would be a universal form the universal form is the imaginal realm of ideas which is the spiritual realm which is all potentiality if you like this is the infinite but we're dealing here with the large infinite because the greeks made a distinction between um infinite numbers you add a large infinite which infinite which was uh, the spiritual realm and then you add the small infinite which is the physical realm in which ideas are manifested the implicated order is manifested as the explicated order in quantum physics uh, which are particularized forms within platonic philosophy so um the Greeks had already deconstructed this, but in today's parlance, we talk about the uh, waveform and the particle, which is essentially the implicated order or the order of universal forms, which is explicated um, into particularized forms, as how Plato would have described this.
So, so when it comes um, that's to, a holographic culture. When it comes in, to, to, to holographic culture, and it's trying to, to dissect all of this, I, I love that sure. word because every word has, as you say, polymorphic meaning, multiple meanings. Sure. When we think of angels, when we think mm. of aliens, Elohim, the cherubim, sure. the, 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 the seraphim, the, the jinn, Sure. Are we talking about the same con same concept here? It's just that now we see it more of a modern uh, <laughs> craft operated by beings from another dimension, planet, you name it, other galaxy. Are, are they the same that thousands of years ago people were reporting as angelic beings? Absolutely. And this can be proven through etymology. Etmos, the study, um, the study of words coming from the Greek root etmos, meaning truth. Um, it's a very complicated answer, that is. Um, but essentially, yes. So, for example, if we, as I said before, there were two orders of angels. You have the cherubim and the seraphim, and they are both equated to um, ships and craft. So, for example, with the seraphim, you have the word Seraph, which is related to Sapana Sailor, the P and the F morphology is very closely related in the Indo -Mor um, in the Indo-European languages, and Safina, which is a ship. So Seraph, Sapan, and um, Safina are a ship. Again, you've got the same um, with the Cherubim as well. So you've got um, the um, Cherub, which is related to um, Carib, which is a boat. And so the cherubim themselves were also equated with these angelic boats and vessels. And again, when we're dealing with the terminology emissary, the word emissary is equated to a missile because the Lord of the host is um, flying uh, wheels or flying shields were deemed as a type of missile, which is equated um, with the host. Now, the missiles in the ancient world were not the elongated missiles that we think of in, in, in today's language, but what they were, were they were these shields. And so they would, in the ancient world, they would take large shields and they would fill them with burning sand and, and typically excrement as well, and it'd be red hot. Sometimes they would put in red hot oil as well, and they would tie these large shields together, and then they would fling them in catapults, and they would spin around, and they would be used to um, destroy fortifications, um, sink naval fleets, um, and also to scatter um, the enemy forces. So um, if you like, these um, flying shields were very majestic and um, were equated with the Elohim and these um, flying vessels. And as I said before, we see that there is this connection with Seraph and Safina, which is a ship, or you would find a similar connection with the um, Cherub and um, Carib, which is um, a type of naval vessel. Actually, it's a small type of landing craft, um, which is equated with the Caribbean. Um, but but we're finding these uh, multiple word plays found within um, different languages as well, So, um, which is polyglottal symbolism. You mentioned etymology, of course, and I mentioned eschatology, not to get religious, but etymology, sure. the study of the history of words. And I mentioned eschatology for the following reason. Let me just define it first. The part sure. of theology concerned with death, judgment, and the final destiny of the soul and of humankind. Speaking of the soul, you mentioned mm. that these beings, we can fill in the blanks of whatever meaning we gave them earlier on. Yeah. You say they have the technology to manipulate our souls. Can you please explain? Right, okay. And, okay, when we're talking about our holographic culture, it's not, not just unique to one race of beings. In order for beings to get to different star systems, uh, the way that it's done is through deconstructing the waveform. This is my understanding from studying this. Um, but the thing is, is that once you begin to deconstruct the waveform, not only does this allow you to um, travel from planet to planet or star system to star system, but this also allows you to be outside of time. But more importantly, it also allows you to um, deconstruct the spiritual realm as well. So all of these different realms are interconnected. And so... When we're dealing with a holographic culture, they are masters of all the worlds. So all the worlds in terms of that they've deconstructed time, they have interplanetary flight, but they've also intercepted and deconstructed the spiritual realm. And by the spiritual realm, I'm talking about the realm of ideas. And so the realm of potentiality. And this is where when we die, 
uh, we go to the spiritual realm, which is the realm of ideas, um, which is the implicit order where we are then manifested and recycled in the explicated order. So that's, um, if you like, the re, uh, reincarnation of the soul. Obviously, the other trajectory is to be assimilated with the absolute, which is another trajectory. So there are, are different trajectories. Now, mastery of the soul pattern was very important to the initiates and to the magicians as well, because the mastery of the soul pattern um, meant that one could control one's incarnation. And when I'm talking about incarnation after death, I'm not necessarily talking about um, one's future incarnation, because you can also control your incarnation into the past, because time doesn't exist. And so when you die, it is possible to incarnate both into the past or into the present. And it's also, I believe, possible to incarnate into a better version of the future or a better version of the past. And so mastery of the soul pattern um, was something which was um, deemed as very important um, by the magicians and by the high initiates. Um, but the, the other route, and again, Buddhism talks about nirvana, which is, um, if you like, the death of uh, the self of the ego and the um, re-emergence with the absolute um, which is god which is the the absolute the supreme the sublime um it's the information field so so yes yeah, so this is what we're talking about and the elohim the high ones they have absolute uh, mastery over these different realms um, but many different entities have mastery over these different realms because in order to leave one's planet one of the ways of achieving this is through de deconstructing the holographic realm which is in essence is the deconstruction of the spiritual realm as well before i ask you the following question i just thought of would it be safe to say if these beings master time and space that mm. this then distance is not an issue for for them. They could theoretically disappear and immediately appear anywhere in the universe, sure. right? Yes. And uh, yeah, well, I mean, we're dealing with um, to use an analogy, technology very similar to what you would find on Star Trek. So they have this ability to materialize and dematerialize. Um, but we also know that they are equated with the star system Sirius and I can go into that later on if you wish and I can demonstrate that both the jinn and the seraphim are one and the same thing um, Arab there is some um, debate shall we say within Islam that the angels are different from the jinn um, but when we look at the etymologies it can be proven or established that the angels and the jinn are one and the same but we can, uh, and that they're equated with Sirius but we can go into that later but if you have more questions um no, that's I'm fine. Quite. This is this is a flow of information back and forth. You sure. mentioned Sirius, and I'm thinking of Sirius A and Sirius B. You probably know sure. the the anecdotes from the Dogon tribes. Sure, they, they they discovered Sirius B, I believe, before the first. I think it was a German uh, astronomer. Uh, sure. I forgot exactly when it was, but it was way yes. after the even the way after the Dogon said it. Tell us more. Okay, well, Robert Temple wrote that book. Um, exactly. He's, a, he, he's, he's an English professor, and he wrote the most definitive and certainly the most comprehensive and the most academic book in the English language on ancient aliens. I don't think it's been bettered, but I do think that my book is as um, – is as let's say as important as his work but there's been a 25 year um if you like um space between my book and his book which means that there hasn't been a lot of serious work into ancient aliens i think the problem is is that a lot of the work done into ancient aliens is just wrong it's incomplete it's disinformation it's coming from the priesthood, because the priesthood control this knowledge, and they control both academia and they also control the alternative media. And so there hasn't really been much work done into ancient aliens, which there's been a lot of repetition, a lot of copying, but uh, the problem is is that a lot of the information out there is, is just problematic. I'm glad you're talking about this. You mentioned ancient so, uh, aliens. The histories, history channels ancient aliens. You're referring to that, right? Yeah, for the most part, it's 
yeah, it's a little bit of a joke, unfortunately. Well, and do you even consider them to be alternative media? Because I don't. I see them more as entertainment. Yeah, it is entertainment. But I think more importantly, this has been done on purpose. I, I personally think that this is a psyops. I also think that there's um, what they're trying to do is discredit the alternative media. So let's say when you say, okay, I'm part of the alternative media, they'll say, oh, well, you're a flat earther. And I think that they're intentionally trying to um, undermine the alternative media. I, I particularly think that they're trying to stop academics looking at this subject because, as I said before, the classical tradition, classis and naval fleet, Malak and angel, Malak a sailor, is a classified tradition. And this is a redacted um, tradition. So as far as I know, I'm the first person talking about this because I'm the only person who's talking about angelic sailors. And I'm the only person who's ever bothered to look at the ancient etymologies and to identify the sailor with the angel. Um, This is probably um, founded within the Kabbalistic um, Judaic system, but you would have to be initiated at the highest levels and you would have to be affiliated to the sons of the boats who are essentially angels. And I will go into that later on as well. But the sons of the boat are equated with serious symbolism. So we have this problem because um, there's, there is a movement to try and undermine um, the um, ancient alien hypotheses. And this hypothesis is has been particularly aimed at, um, it's, it's aimed towards the academic. They do not want academia to go anywhere near this subject. I mean, I, I think one of the reasons is because academia is used to steer narrative, it's used to dis, um, steer discourse, um, and, and again, it's used ideologically as well. And so therefore, when you, re- when you begin to realize that the angels are one and the same with an alien, um, and this narrative has been used to steer religion, language, culture. They're not, it's not just suddenly a new idea which has emerged in the 1940s with Roswell, but this thing goes back into the ancient world. Then this begins to deconstruct a lot of, shall we say, the symbology of um, governments, of religion. And so I think that they're very anxious that this should not be deconstructed. And so therefore it's been hidden away with the priesthood. There's been an attempt at um, a lot of disinformation, disinformation which has been aimed at academics so that academics who are familiar, let's say, with the theological traditions, with the Apocrypha, will instantly dismiss um, what is being said as being ludicrous. And so hopefully I'm um, here to try and address that, um, shall we say, that imbalance. And I have to say, when you think about who owns History Channel, it was sold to A&E Networks, which is owned by yes. Disney. We can't expect the truth coming out of them. And as you said, and I don't mean to get conspiratorial here, but we have to. Sure. Because as you said, the priesthood, and I'm glad you you you, you distilled it to the lowest common, common denominator. The priesthood right. owns these. And if you're going to have the truth coming out, which may be mm. detrimental to the current paradigm, they cannot release that information. But what I mentioned about series A and B, just for the folks who are listening, Alvin Graham Clark, 1844, was the German astronomer. Sorry, the first one was Friedrich Bessel, the German astronomer. He discovered the uh, series A, January 31st, 1862. Then series B was discovered by Alvin Graham Clark. And uh, he found this Faint companion, which is called Series B, or affectionately called the pup. Now, how do you think that the Dogon tribe, without the technology, that's what we're told, that they didn't have the technology, but you look at some of the monuments and the megaliths around the world, and some people say they were the priests from the times of the Egyptian dynasty that escaped, escaped, and then through oral tradition is how they keep their knowledge alive. What do you Mm -hmm. say about that? Yeah, they got their knowledge where everybody else got their knowledge, whether it was the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Mayans, the Japanese, the Chinese, and their um, themes are identical. And this is really found within what I describe as the artifact. The artifact is this alien code. It works on polyglottal symbols. So 
word plays which are repeated in multiple languages and this is a type of encryption which um, alludes to our points to the um, to the aliens or, or the angels as i said the terminology is interchangeable the angel is a synonym of an alien and this is found in the aramaic word czar is a polymorphic word it means an angel but it also has the additional meaning of an alien a visitor a foreigner a stranger and so czar is equated with sira which is a boat because as i said before they're equated with um, vessels and again it's equated with the um, um the princely lineage or the royal lineage czar which is a prince or a commander of a vessel and those word plays are repeated out within multiple languages so um and if we go into this serious symbolism um it's a tri-star system and the third star is hidden and i think that this is also important when we're beginning to deconstruct sirius and its um, correlation with um, the seraphim and the jinn so for example the third star is hidden now when we look at the etymology of jinn we see jinn which is equated to jana which is to hide or to conceal now remember that the jinn are said to be born of fire and so the jinn are equated with the seraphim the word seraph is equated with serefa which is fire and so the jinn are equated or correlated um, with the seraphim. So um, the seraphim are sometimes referred to as a watcher. So there is this correspondence between sofepha watcher, seraphim serpent, and serepha, which is fire. Now, fire is uh, this um, denomination, if you like, of Sirius. Um, the, the terminology Sirius in the Arabic, Sira, which is Sirius, um, it has a connotation in the Arabic of Sir, which is a, a mystery, um, a secret, sacred. Um, but again, uh, we're seeing that um, Sira is coming from the root Sara, which is to sparkle. Now, to sparkle is in um, um, Sara, sorry, which is a spark. So Sira is to sparkle, the sparkling one. Sara is a spark. And, and this is really important because the terminology spark is used to refer to seraph which is a serpent and serepha which is fire so the seraphim otherwise the jinn jenna serpent the jinn are born of fire are identified with sirius the sparkling one or that which is equated with a spark as i said before we've also got the third star of sirius which is a hidden jinn jana to hide or to conceal so that both the jinn and the seraphim otherwise known as the watchers are identified with Sirius. Now, um, as I said before, they're therefore identified with angelic sailors. So there is this correspondence between Seraph, Sapana Sailor, Safina, which is a ship. Um, so in the modern parlance, we would describe them as alien because they're non-human in appearance. And again, there is really that connotation with Zara, an angel or an alien, and Sira, which is a boat. Now, what's very interesting is that the word Malak, an angel, and Malak, a sailor, is also found within the Kabbalistic terminology of the Ben Sira. Now, the Ben Sira is literally translated as a son of a boat. But what's very interesting about the word Sira is it works on a special type of wordplay. It's known as diptych paranomasia. So the Hebrew word Sira, which means a boat, in Arabic, when you render it in Arabic, Sira is Sirius. So the Ben Sira, which is a son of a boat, um, is a wordplay on the Arabic Ben Sira, which is a son of Sirius. The son of Sirius are identified with the sons of a boat, which are equated with an angel. Now, this angelic lineage is also um, identified with the lineage of the king. Hence, there is this correspondence with Malak an angel and Melek a king. As we said, Malak an angel, Malak a sailor. Now, this is translated into English as kingship. Kingship is denoting the naval lineage, which is the angelic lineage, which is identified with the star system Sirius. So we're dis uh, we, when we're discussing sorry. all of this, I'm thinking of uh, the chariots that the... Sure. Well, even in the Bible is discussed. In Ezekiel, that's right. The Ezekiel, Ezekiel the exactly the the the, the the wheels of Ezekiel. Is that what what it was? That is correct. Yes. Well, the they're known as the Ophanim in the plural, um, and 
the opening, and I think that this is very interesting because in the 1950s, Frank Scully wrote a book and he talked about how the UFO was um, constructed from a series of cogs. And when you look at the word ophanim, it literally means the wheels. And so both Ezekiel and and again in the book of Jeremiah, the wheels are described as a work of the Lord, literally a construction of of the Lord. And so they are deemed as physical objects. So this is not just a pie in the sky kind of um, phosphorescent um, object. This is something which is physical and which was hidden. Uh, Again, in the symbology, um, they're often referred to Shen, which is a cog, which can also be represented as a tooth, which is equated with a prophet, uh, because the word nab, which is a canine tooth, which is used to denote or is an occult signifier of the dog star Sirius, but nab, a tooth, is used to denote nabi, which is a prophet. So the tooth is often used to denote a prophet, and, and it's found within symbolism, such as the sewing of the dragon's tooth, uh, which is equated, the dragon is equated with the seraphim. And so for, therefore we see that there is this, if you like, relationship with sofa for watcher and seraph, which is a serpent, but also within the Greek, Dracon is coming from Dracane, which is um, to watch or to gleam. Uh, this essentially is denoting the Erin in the Hebrew. Erin are the watchers or the shining one. Ur, which is a watcher, or which is light. Now, the Erin in the Testament of Amran, which is an apocrypha text, are described as um, having a visage or having a face like a viper. So um, we know that the Erin looks like serpents, which would denote that the Erin are one and the same as Sofa for Watcher and Seraph, which is a Seraphim. As we said before, the Seraphim, the Shining Ones, are identified with Sirius. Um, in the arcane traditions, they're also equated with the Illuminati, and we can go there in a moment. But I really want to just pin down the fact that the Erin are one and the same with the Elohim, and this is found within polyglottal symbolism, and this is a real if you like, important point, which we need to reiterate. Um, So, for example, the Elohim um, is equated with Erin, which is a watcher or a shining one. So the Elohim, which is um, the generic word for the gods, um, it's used in the plural form. And Erin, again, plural for the watchers or the shining ones, and um, is equated in the Greek, in the polyglottal symbolism, with Theos, a god, Theros, a watcher, Phos, which is light. You know, so this is identical. We can also say that Theos the God is equated with Therion a beast, and this is because the watchers are identified with a serpent, which is a type of dragon, as we made an allusion before, Dracon and Dracos, which is an eye. And so when you see the symbology of the all-seeing eye, what you're really looking at is an, a, a representation of the watchers or the dragon, which is identified with the seraphim. And as I said before, the seraphim, Sofa for watcher, seraph for serpent, seraph for fire, or Erin a watcher or a shining one is represented as shining to denote Sirius. And so the eye is often shown as shining. And so this is an important symbology within the occult. Now, remember that the word occult itself is coming from the etymology to hide or to conceal. And again, this is another representation of jinn. Um, coming from the root jana to hide or to conceal. But remember that the word jinn, which uh, means a spirit, um, is equated with jen, which is a serpent or a worm. In the biblical tradition, the serpent is described as the most subtle creature. And again, we're seeing that relationship, if you like, with a seraph, a serpent, shofar, which is an um, an, an apparition or an appearance. Um, but again, in, in, in the Greek, you, you would find similar um, word plays between um, the, the old Semitic word fain, um, fenu, and um, a, a phantom. So these word plays are playing out in, in multiple different languages. Again, um, Akon, an appearance, is found with Akan, um, the Babylonian word for a serpent. In, in the Semitic also, Aya, um, which is an appearance, Aya, which is a serpent. So again, these word plays are uniformal or polyglottal, and, and they show that the serpent has this power over the waveform. They can dematerialize. They have deconstructed the waveform. Um, but we are very much on the brink of deconstructing the waveform ourselves. We're not that far away. So um, again, um, so once time is out of the sequence, um, then um, this this obviously has profound philosophical implications for a culture which is not subject to the, um, um, if you like, to um, time, to the, um, to the ramifications of time. 
You know, I wonder this. You mentioned Sirius and the dog. Then I think of the Dogon and their connection with Egypt. And it makes sure. you wonder if the statues that we see in Egypt of this humanoid-looking dog, and then you see the Anubis, sure. is the Anubis yeah. a dog? Is there a correlation here between all of Anubis. these? Anubis, Anubis, there you go. Yeah, well, Anubis, again, Nubis is, is a cloud, the Nubagina in the Latin. So the Nubagina is those who are born of, of a cloud. Um, and so that in, in itself is um, very interesting. But the dog is a very important signifier because it signifies the dog star. And it's encoded in multiple languages in both convergent and polyglottal symbolism. So just to give you some examples of the correspondence of, of the dog, um, and, and again, some of the symbology of the dog is coming from the fact that um, wolves and dogs, they bay um, with the rising of Venus, and Venus is is known as the light bringer, which is a symbol of Lucifer, but Lucifer leads the way, um, points the way to Sirius. And so in symbolism, in order, if you like, to hide the signifier of Sirius, sometimes what they do is they use the symbology of Venus, which is the lightest um, planet within our solar system and is therefore mirrored with Sirius, which is the brightest star within our known, um, within our known um, cosmos. So, um, but, but there is this um, correspondence with the dog. And so we find in English, there's a correspondence between God and dog, but it's a polyglottal symbol. It, it's also found within Arabic. Allah God is equated with Awatabak in the Latin um, Lato is the old Latin word for Apollo, but is equated with Latro, which is um, to bark or to snarl. Again, Latro is equated with Latens, which is to hide or to conceal. It's where we get the word Latin from because the Latin language hides or conceals. And this is very important because it's equated with the barker or one who snarls, which is equated with the formation of language. Um, but again, even in the Japanese, the word um, kami, god, is equated with o-kami, which is a wolf. And uh, the wolf is a signifier of the Japanese reptilian deities, Tengu. The Tengu uh, means heaven's dog. But again, they are equated with language, as in tango, which is a word. But we're finding similar uh, word plays also within the Hebrew, seraph and safa, which is a, um, a, a language um, and again, you're finding um, similarities also within the Arabic with um, tab and a snake. Tab, which is an addition, um, because the serpent is equated with knowledge. And it's also equated with um, books as well and with um, writing as well. So, um, for example, in the Japanese, the Tengu deities are equated with tang tango, which is a word. Again, they've encrypted their association with language. In the ancient Babylonian, this would be Akan, which is a seraph, equated with Akim, which is a king. But the terminology Akim, a king, is equated with Aka, to talk. So the serpent uh, is often referred to as the talker. The serpent likes word games because it's encrypted itself within human language. And this is a, a concealed tradition, which is a cult, which goes back to the symbology of the dragon. But essentially, when we deconstruct it, there are two occult traditions. There is the occult tradition of the seraphim, which are these non-human angels. And then there's the occult tradition of the cherubim, which are these uh, humanoid angels. I describe them as the pro proto-human because they are the original seed which was used to create the Adamic man. The Adamic man was um, this amalgamation uh, which was created, this um, genetic configuration created from the hominid species on the earth and is, is also um, genetically um, compatible both with the seraphim and also with the cherubim. So the Ad Adamic man is something which is quite different and appears to be equated in the symbology with the Ishim, which is a human angel, more specifically an Adamic angel. But the Adamic angel seems to, although identified with the cherubim, seems to be different from the cherubim. And the cherubim appears to be this um, proto-human lineage, which is distinct from the Ishim, which are these Adamic angels. But essentially, we're all going back to the Ben Sira and the son of a boat, Malak an angel, Malak a um, sailor. Panspermia. Let's go with Panspermia. I'm thinking of the Ridley sure. Scott movie Prometheus, which I, I, sure. I presume you probably watched. Do you think that that was an accurate moment? Perhaps not what Hollywood is telling us, but more or less what created the Adamic civilization? 
Yeah, I mean, this is a con- complex mythology. I've only partially dis- decoded it, and it's something which I'm working on in a current book, which goes into very deep astrotheological symbolism. Um, but to, if you like to give your viewers or listeners a basic rundown of what occurred. And again, that this is very um, fragmentary and it's coming from um, traditions such as Homer. Remember the word Homer in the Latin is equated with uh, man, um, homologous, that which is the same. As I said before, there's this humanist tradition and then there is this non-human tradition like you've got Ophid. But again, the word um, Ophid is a a serpent or Ovid. Um, So all these different um, philosophers um, Pythagoras, Puthonagoras, the speaker of the serpent. Euclid is a diptych paranomasia or a wordplay on Euclid to copy or to ape in the Arabic curd, which is an ape. Again, the um, if you like, um, the elements of geometry is this humanist tradition. So you've always got within philosophy the humanist tradition equated with the Caribbean angels and then the Pythagorean tradition, Puthonagoras, the speaker of the serpent, which is a seraphic tradition. In Freemasonry, it's represented by the two pillars of Freemasonry. Again, it's also represented by the um, double insignia of the triangle, which makes the Star of David. Again, in the um, you've got a wordplay on talat, which is three, and tolat, which is a worm. When you combine the two triangles together, so the if you like, the triangle represents the worm. Again, it has a connotation of the dragon's tooth, which equates with the prophet. But when you combine the two triangles together, you have three and three, which is 33 degrees of Freemasonry. The Western rites of Freemasonry, rabbi and master, is equated with rabbi, which is Western, uh, which is the Occidental tradition, oxidare, which is to kill or to murder. Hence, the rites of Freemasonry, uh, sacrificial rites. So we're dealing with... Um, layered symbolism but going back to the symbology of panspermia the greeks um anaxagoras spoke about panspermia and he talked about spermatos which were seeds or stars and so the greeks really equated um the stars as um seeds and again this is why um, seeds and seed baskets are very important within um, the greek mystery religions because the spreading of the seed is equated with the night sky the night sky is um, the seeds in the sky can be spread on the earth and so there is this um, equation within the greek between syros which is a corn pit and syrios which is sirius um, again, because this idea of panspermia um, and the Quran borrows a lot of these ideas. And I think that this is what's very interesting about the Quran. And, and this is certainly found within, shall we say, Gnostic sets within Islam. But it has not been deconstructed because a lot of Muslims um, just are not willing to go there. I think it was deconstructed in the past, but it's been veiled and hidden away. But much of the Quranic text is actually influenced through Greek philosophy. We're talking about Hermetic literature, Neoplatonic philosophy, um, Valin, um, Valentinian um, literature. And, and so um, e- even, for example, with Iblis, the word Iblis, although Arabic scholars will trace it back to um, Balasa, uh, which is um, to, um, to suffer, but Iblis is really another ep- etymology of Ubris, which is the Greek word for um, pride, arrogance, in particular pride which tr- tries to um, supersede a deity, and this is what Iblis tried to do. So Iblis is the Arabic transliteration of the Greek word Uberis. And we're finding also within the um, Quranic traditions of the Kiramin Katabin, the two noble recorders, they really go into the Socratic traditions of the um, dialectic, which is the dialogue. Um, now, Socrates established um, the dialectic, um, the, the dialectic, which is this um, dialogue or shall we say, the argument and the counter-argument, which is the linchpin of psychoanalytical theory because it goes back into the um, the conscious mind and the unconscious mind, or as what Cicero would have said, uh, the... Um, the rational mind and the irrational mind. The irrational mind is the daemonic mind. The daemonic mind is the mind which can interface with um, the uh, daemonic realm, which, as I said before, is the irrational realm because this is the realm of ideas, which is the imaginal or the spiritual realm. So um, these are the ideas which, if you like, have um, informed um, both 
Greek philosophical thinking, but also have informed our own modern sciences and our own um, psychoanalytical theory as well. And, and again, goes into the um, Jung's concepts of the archetype. The archetype is a really just a, another enumeration of um, universal forms, which is the implicit order, which was described in Platonic and Neoplatonic thought. I have to ask you this. So, you mentioned Latin, and that brought up a few thoughts up in my mind. Okay. We didn't know anything about the Egyptians until the Greeks told us. The Greek yes. gods... The Greek gods were then transformed into Roman gods, which were then yes. morphed into Christianity. Latin sure. was a critical part of this. What I'm about it to was. say sometimes offends my Christian brothers and sisters, and, I, and it's not my intention, but I have to ask you for your perspective. Sure. When you look at Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper, we see yeah. Jesus, mm -hmm. the Son, S-O-N, or S-U-N. Then mm -hmm. on each side, we see the six and six apostles, If you put mm. them in clusters of three, those are the seasons, those are the months. Yeah. Do you see where I'm coming from? What do you see here in astrotheological terms? Yeah, I was going to say it's astrotheological. I think what's quite interesting about Christ's disciples as well, and I would ask your um, listeners to, to look at this and, and look at Raphael and other artists, is that when you actually look at the apostles, um, oh, sorry, the disciples. Some of the disciples have halos over their heads and some of them don't. And this is basically forming a distinction between the Ben Ahadim, those who are born of the earth, and the Ben Ahelohim, those who are born of heaven, which would be equated with the son of a boat, which is equated with this angelic lineage. And so this is something important because the halo, although in the um, outer mysteries is identified with the sun, within the inner mysteries it's equated with Sirius, and Sirius is equated with the opening wheels. So one way of representing the opening wheels is to represent the wheel as shining. So there is this correspondence in the Aramaic between Ophan and a wheel, Pana, which is to turn or spin, but Ophir, which is the old root, meaning radiant or golden. So this is a golden wheel, which is our equated with the sons of a boat. And so the disciples of Jesus are both um, split between the Ben Ahadim, the son of Adam, and then the Ben Ahelohim. And I think what's quite interesting uh, in the Christian tradition, and this was certainly played out within the politics of the Nicene Creed, is that there was this partition. And this partition really goes back to the humanist split between, shall we say, uh, the um, human tradition, which is equated with the cherubim, Uh, we said it is the Euclidean um, tradition in the philosophical tradition, and then the Seraphic tradition, um, which is the Pythagorean tradition. So the debate within Christian theology was essentially, was Christ the Bene Helloim, the son of the Elohim, or the son of God, the monogenes, uh, one, um, one bloodline, or was he equated with the Bene Hadam, the son of man? And in the Nicene Creed, they said that he was both. Because the church was split between the, the um, humanist and the seraphic tradition. And so they synthesized the dialectic. In the dialectic, you have the thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis. And the church synthesized the argument. And they said he, his father was Joseph. And so they therefore traced Jesus's line all the way back um, uh, through Joseph To King, to King David, in, I think it's in the book of Matthew. Um, but they also said that he was born of a virgin and he was uh, the son of God. And therefore, he was um, sinless and he was um, godlike, which was, again, very similar to what the Roman emperors said about themselves. Um, Caesar himself, Caesar, Caesar, in the um, Greek word for Caesar, Caesar. In the Hebrew, is a diptych paramecia of Kaiser meaning an, um, a space alien, you know, and I think that, that's very interesting because Zar, as we said, is an angel or an alien, a visitor or a stranger, but Kaiser literally means a, a living alien. And so again, this is going back to the LRK, which is a high, um, high creature in today's parlance, an extraterrestrial biological entity. LRK can also be translated as a living God, but in a literal sense, this was a literally a living God. This wasn't some kind of abstract notion of just a, a conscious, sentient force. This was an angelic force which intervened within human history. It was represented as um, a, a God 
who was a commander of a naval host, which were identified with these wheels, which were described as physical constructions and which were buried under temples. Or we find this symbology within the temple layout. So, for example, we see that there's a correspondence between um, not, um, Naus, which is a, a temple, and um, Nos, which is a boat. Again, within the church, you have um, a nave, which is equated in Latin, navis, a boat. We would say worship, you know, because you are worship or venerating these angelic vessels. Religion is coming from the root relegate, more or to tie a vessel. And even the votive dishes in the ancient world, if you look at the um, votive dishes, you'll see that the dish is a circle with a small um, circle in the middle or um uh, sometimes it's a tooth and sometimes it's a circle but this was used to render the hieroglyph of Sirius um, but importantly this circle within a circle uh, which is used to render the hieroglyph Sirius is also to, used to render a wheel and, and the wheel is equated um, with um, the opening wheels which are identified with the Ben Sira and I think that this is an important point when we go into um, the second creation uh, when we look at the Ben Sira we see that the word uh, Sira boat, the sons of a boat, they're equated with Zar, an angel, alien, stranger, or visitor. But Zar is also equated with Zara, which is to sow in the Arabic, Zaria, which is seed. And, and again, uh, the word Sira, a boat, is created with Yetzira, which is creation, Yetzer, which is a creature. So they are identified with the planting of um, the Adamic human on the earth, which in the Quran is described as a second creation. And in the Quran, the Quran describes that um, God um, took man in a, or took the sperm and mixed the sperm within a receptacle. And, and so this is interesting because... Um, in the biblical tradition, again, Adam is created from dust. But again, there is this wordplay between Adamar dust and Adam. So Adam is created from Adam, which is um, skin. Um, in the Quran, uh, man is created from sperm. So um, again, the reference is uh, referring to the plant, plant, uh, planting of the human um, bloodline, which is the Adamic bloodline. Um, in, in the traditions, the Adamic bloodline is equated with Mars, so there is this correspondence between Adam, Adam, red, and Mahadim, Mars, uh, Mahadim, you know, from out of Adam, which is Adam, which is red, so um, Adama, which is the red earth. So this is very interesting. Um, but um, the Adamic races, when we begin to break down the etymology, they actually originated from Orion, but then moved from a. They were reconfigured or remade from. In, in the classical philosophy, and it's very complicated, and, and this is something I'm going to be looking at in my new book, but essentially the Adamic races are equated with Orion, as are the Nephilim, and, and, um, and then they. Um, they are planted on Mars and then they, their bloodline is taken to the moon and then is planted on the earth. And so it's a, it's a complex, um, it's a complex mythology. And again, it's only partial and because we're dealing here with the fact that we have amnesia, you know, we have not been given the truth about the origins of humanity. So humanity is living within a state of amnesia. And in terms of symbology, we are illiterate. You know, we have not been given the keys to the symbolism. One of the keys to the um, to symbolism is through language. So we're dealing here with symbolism and language. But there are other types of keys as well, such as um, numerology. So you can also, and this interconnects with language as well, alphanumeric symbolism, which then interconnects with astrotheology, gematria, and these other occult sciences, which are very deep and which are embedded within our culture, but at a very esoteric level. Hold it right there, because that's a huge download you're giving me, and I want to close this segment with what you just said. Sure. The, the limitations that were imposed to us by language. I think that's critical. And if there's something that we can agree on is our hidden history. I would say that what we know of our history is the tip of the iceberg, if at all, sure. if it's even true. Sure. I have my own doubts sure. about Adam and Eve. I've read a few mm. books that were confiscated, one of them, the story of Adam and Eve. I don't know if you've, if you've read it. It was confiscated by the CIA for decades, and it was re uh, edited, and I have the original version that tells us that we are the sixth incarnation of our civilization civilization on earth, and previous cataclysms have almost killed us, and we start again and again. But you mentioned the Kaiser, 
Caesar. Sure. I wonder if they're the same. For example, I'm thinking of Kaiser Wilhelm the yeah. second. I'm thinking yeah, yeah. of the of the Russian czars. Are they the yeah. same term? Same terminology, yeah. Great, great. And one last thing before I we go to break, I just want to say this. I'll get your reaction on the other side. When it comes to ufology, it seems that the Navy, at least in the United States, it's the mm. branch of our military that has or had jurisdiction over the subject. Perhaps now sure. it's the Space Force. But once again, I go back to angelic sailors. The word sailor denotes water, at least to me. So what is the connection between the sea and space? But we'll take your answer on the other side. How can people learn more about your work? Buy the new book and all the other books and your website. Yes, that's right. Go to my website at P.S. Back Books. I've got a YouTube channel under P.S. Back, so just Google um, P.S. Back and you'll find my YouTube channel. Um, I'm continually updating my YouTube channel. I try and put out information every week or every couple of weeks. Um, so, yeah, please leave a comment. I, I do try and answer some of my comments, but again, it, it's difficult. Sometimes I have a lot of work on, but I, I, I do try and at least answer some of the pertinent questions that um, your listeners or viewers may have. And I do try and engage with my audience as much as I can, time permitting. Very well. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Pierre Sabak, who's He's very late where he is, so I'm going to go come back <laughs> really yes. quick and start again. See you in the member section. I'm Mel Hostelrick. You're listening to Veritas. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, Proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know. <laughs>